From Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Then I realized I really wanted to give eggs because then I could have lots and lots of kids. I first heard of egg donation pretty much my freshman year at Stanford. I had an IMTA who was talking about this big controversy that happened when she was a student at Cal where this ad appeared in the Cal newspaper for like a woman who was 5'10 with blonde hair with these SAT scores and like did these sports and like modeling experience preferred. And they offered $20,000 for the egg. And then the exact same ad appeared in the Stanford newspaper, but they offered 40,000. So there's this big controversy about like a Stanford egg being worth twice as much as a Cal egg. And I was kind of like, huh, egg donation. So then, like, I started seeing these ads in the Stanford paper a couple months later that were like, EliteDonors.com, $100,000, and I was like, wow, like, people really want these eggs. They're willing to pay me $100,000 for my eggs. They must be paying someone else, like, a million dollars to find me and, like, put my egg into them and everything. So, you know, they really want to be parents. And then I realized I really wanted to give eggs because then I can have lots and lots of kids without like actually having to get pregnant and raise kids. I can just, you know, spread my DNA. I'm sure someday I'll change my mind, but like right now, at this point in my 22-year-old life, I just never ever want them. Even when I look at them, I just think, ugh, prison. Because once you have the baby, you can't really do anything anymore. It just you raise it, and all the mothers say, like, oh, I love it, it's totally worth it, but my 22-year-old self says, no, prison, oppression. So I ended up going to this EliteDonors.com webpage, and I downloaded their application, and it was like this, it was pretty long, like eight pages, with really specific questions like what color is your hair and how old were your grandparents when they died and what color was their hair and did you ever wear braces? Do you have any family history of like heart disease or cancer or you know blah blah blah. Just you know trying to get the best genes possible. So I filled it out the best I could. There was a lot I didn't know like you know whether or not my grandparents had ever had braces and stuff like that. So I filled it out and then with your application you're supposed to send them pictures. So I went onto Facebook and I looked through all my pictures and I picked the hottest ones of myself. Pictures that looked like I was happy and having fun because everyone wants happy children who have fun. Or maybe not. Maybe they want kids who are way smart and I'd do better if I took pictures at the library. And I sent them in. I sent in twice as many pictures as they wanted actually to increase my chances of them seeing my beauty. Inner or outer. And I waited for a long time, and they rejected me the first time. And they did ask if anyone in the family had, like, arthritis. So that was a mark against me. But then they said they would reconsider my application for this new round of applicants that they're doing now. So, fingers crossed. If the parents want to meet the egg donors, then, you know, you have to meet them, but sometimes they don't want to. I think it would be interesting, like I would certainly, I wouldn't say babysit because I don't want to be responsible for it, babies kind of weird me out, right, but I don't know, just see it, maybe once a year, just look in the window and see how it looks and what it's doing. I think everybody wants their child to be perfect and 
you know. <laughs> that story you just heard came from my friend Eva, who, by the way, still has not found the right agency for her eggs. Just goes to show, in egg donation, in romance, even when you think you found the perfect match, something can come along and spoil it all. You thought you and your significant other clicked, but it turns out that clicking was just the grinding of teeth. Happy Valentine's Day. You're listening to the Stanford Storytelling Project on 90.1 KZSU. I'm Charlie Mintz, and today on our show, we're celebrating all the reasons love goes right and wrong. We're calling it What Makes Us Click. I'll just find some more suitable mood music, and then we can go on. Last year, we brought you stories of people answering the question, who do you love and when did you know? This year, we're after something a little bit different. We've got stories about the failure to click, stories about that special something just not being there. Oh yeah. We know about the pain and the frustration the failure to click can cause, and so we're here to ease the pain, to soothe the frustration. And who knows, we might just help you figure out why you and that special someone aren't clicking, and then you can get started on that messy breakup. Oh yeah. First up on our show, we take you to the city of love for a potential answer to the question of why, when it comes to French girls, it can be so maddeningly, exasperatingly, despairingly difficult to click. Or so we've been told, at least. Second, it's a radio play, the story of matchmaking gone terribly wrong. After that, we bring you to science. Our third and last story looks at American expectations for love, asks whether arranged marriages might be best, and helps to explain the maddening vicissitudes of the human heart. Oh, Brigitte, why won't you answer our mail? All those stories coming to you this hour. Enjoy. Oh, and Anonymous Listener, there's something we want to tell you. Anonymous Listener, we love you. Without you, we're nothing but a boat without harbor, a plane without runway, a bus without depot. We know we don't tell you this enough, and we're sorry. We'd buy you chocolates and flowers every day if we had the budget for it. Instead, we hope you'll appreciate this box of, this bouquet of, this lacy pair of storytelling. First up, our producer Hannah Krakauer explores the allure of the French female. What do they have that American women don't? She talks to an American girl dating a French guy, an American guy still trying to land his French girl, and a French guy who's given up on the elusive French female for something better. American Girls. It was September 23rd, 2008, and I was just getting my last few things together to head out the door and onto a long airplane ride. My suitcases were open before me, and I was already stressing about what I was going to wear. Too dressy, too casual, I had no idea. I was spending the fall quarter of school abroad in Paris, living with a host family, studying French, the whole deal. There were a lot of things that scared me about the idea of going to live in Paris for three months. For someone who's never been before, Paris can be a pretty overwhelming place. You've got a bustling city, miles upon miles of classic art, thousands of years of culture, and then there are these women. They float down the streets with this air of calm and confidence and mystique that seemed somehow uniquely Parisian. The first word I would use to describe them is intimidating, but there are lots of others as well. Aloof. Generally hot. Opinionated. They dress like smart, like class. Very classy. Girly. Very cold. And 
vein. No, I'm <laughs> just kidding. Um, <laughs> this is Emma. My name is Emma. I'm from San Francisco, California. I'm 20 years old, and I am in a serious relationship. Emma's been dating her boyfriend, a French guy named Olivier, for almost a year. She met him when she came to Paris last spring to work as a cook. Sparks flew pretty quickly. At the beginning, I he, he was very shy and very quiet. But, you know, one day he gave me a little wink, and another day he saved an apron for me, and Aprons are like gold in, in restaurants. Aprons, clean aprons and uh, clean towels are um, like gold bouillon, essentially. So one Friday night, I'm a fairly forward girl, uh, quite a forward girl, more, more forward than French girls, I think. And um, I wanted a beer on a Friday night, and I was just looking for someone to have a conversation with. So um, he, you know, walked out of the, of the vestiaire, and I said, Voulez-vous boire un verre? That's, want to get a drink? It's about the only thing I knew how to say. Um, so we went to Brasserie nearby and got a beer, and we were huddled over my mini French dictionary and exchanging music on each other's iPods and had a very, very fragmented conversation, and we were both exhausted, but that was our, that was our first experience going out together. Um, things moved very, very quickly for us. I mean, after the first week, we ex exchanged I love yous and, you know, I was invited to, to move in with him. I mean, this is this is a very unique story, but um, <laughs> just with him, it was just feeling appreciated and valued right off the bat that made me feel very comfortable in a way I had never felt with anyone else before. One of the other Americans I knew in Paris was this guy. My name is Samuel Lopez Barantes. I'm from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and I'm 20 and not in a relationship. And unlike Emma, he hasn't had as much luck in the romantic department meeting people in Paris. Yeah, so I've met a lot of French girls, and I figured that after three months, somebody, like, one night... I mean, the thing is, in the U.S., it's just, that's how it happens. You, ha you find a connection with a girl, and you guys go out and have fun and have some drinks, and that's just how it happens. It's not like too hard. I wouldn't say American girls are easy, they're just not incredibly stuck up. <laughs> I feel the need to point out that based on fairly objective standards, Samuel should be doing pretty well. He's had a good amount of success with girls back home, he's a good-looking guy, and he sings in a jazz club in the Latin Quarter once a week. Georgia, Georgia, the whole Just an old Swiss song Keeps Georgia on my mind Yeah, Georgia But despite all that, and despite all his efforts in over three months of being in Paris, he hasn't even gotten a goodnight kiss from a French girl. There was that one time he came close, but it didn't exactly work out. Uh, yeah, well, this, this French friend I have, that she's cool and she's hot, and I was, I guess, reading signs wrong, but I was in a French class, and she, like, gave me her email. She was like, yeah, if you have any questions, give me your email. I mean, I'll give you my email because uh, I'd like to hang out. I love meeting Americans, etc. So she seemed pretty excited. So I'd been hanging out with her for a while. I had, like, a couple dates and, like, taught her how to play some piano, like, classic little like holding hand games, so I, I thought it was pretty good. So I'd been with this for, for like five hours at her apartment and everything, just hanging out. 
and then we were getting ready to I had to go somewhere else I was getting on the metro and she I did the the bisou like the the kisses on the cheeks and so as I was turning away she kind of grabbed my shoulder and kind of hit it as well so it was like an awkward like grab slash punch of my shoulder and so at that point I had to make a quick decision what that meant and I figured if a girl grabs my shoulder and wants me to turn back around after I've already said goodbye to her it's probably because she wants to continue kissing so <laughs> I kind of like brought her in and just cold cold French cheek in my face gave her a gave her a kiss on the cheek and then that, <laughs> that, was, uh, that was that was a low point of my experience in Paris <laughs> that sucks like w did you ever figure out exactly what she was looking for when she grabbed your shoulder like that no I, I, I consulted my friends and they all agreed that I should have done what I did and try and kiss her and it just didn't work so hung out with her a couple more times but I've kind of been I just haven't really attempted to even hang out like outside of with multiple friends because if if that wasn't a wasn't a signal of if I'm gonna get with her or not then I don't know what is Samuel doing wrong his friends all seem to think he read the signs right and it's a mystery to them where the night went awry is it something he did is it Samuel himself just what are these girls looking for well I think what French girls are looking for in a guy is someone that will spend a very long time courting them and buying them things. Our good friend Philippe, he is hopelessly, hopelessly in love with his sort of high school sweetheart girlfriend and she keeps on rejecting him and turning him down. He keeps on whining her and dining her and pursuing her and sending her flowers and gifts and thinking of her all the time. And showing them that they are worthy of being with her because she's supposed to be some great woman that could never dare to try and take a guy after like two weeks, which is still absurd if I had to court a girl for two weeks. Okay, let's back up a bit. Maybe what we need here is a little French perspective. Yeah, um, I try to pick up a girl often in discotheque. This is normal and sometimes it fails, yeah, <laughs> that's true. A lot of time. This is Luc. My name is Luc. I come from France. I live in Paris. And how many relationships I had? Are you in a relationship right now? Right yes, I think so. I have a girl, but it's, not, it's almost my girlfriend. And how old are you? I'm 23. I have a friend who's American who's been in Paris for three months now. Mm -hmm. And he has been trying and trying to pick up a French girl and he just fails miserably every time. Do you have any advice for him, like ways to pick up French girls? Yeah, I think I, I can give him some advice. First, he must be uh, with friends and when he go to discotheque, I, because he don't know any French girl in his life, so he will meet them at club and during the night, just be well dressed and without any shame. You, you must go and speak with her. You, you must ask her a lot of questions, open questions, you know. That's the best way. He told me that he's even tried that, and he just gets one-word answers, that they're just completely not interested. Like, the, the, that blonde girl at the club last night, that's a great singer and very attractive. I went to outside, because I saw she was outside, so I went out and I was going to chat her up. And I was asking her questions, and she just gave me one-word answers. Like I said, like, Oh, you were really great out there. Like, I haven't seen you before. And she said, thanks. And then I was like, oh, well, 
got to keep asking questions. So I was like, do you study music at the Sorbonne? Or like, I've, I've taken some courses here. And she said, yeah, I do. And then I was like, wow, well, you're really not having any of this conversation. What do you do then? <laughs> I changed girl, tried another one. Maybe he tried with girl who are too much good looking for him. Or also a young girl. There is some club with younger girl and when the girl is about 17, 18, they are really more open-minded than 22. At this point, the question running through my mind is what on earth makes these girls worth all the effort? They seem so difficult. Why are they so special? Emma and I had the same literature professor while we were in Paris, and if we were to choose one woman to represent the prototypical Parisian, we'd both pick her. She's tall, willowy, elegant, carries herself beautifully, and has this certain je ne sais quoi. I mean, it's definitely a je ne sais quoi. I mean, the, she is very sort of, that, that tall and slender look is quite Parisian. I mean, you, you see the women are, tend to be thinner here. Um, that's definitely true. And the way she dresses, um, that's something I was talking about with a friend earlier today, that the way that the French and the, you know, the French women approach everyday life, la vie quotidienne, and the way they, the way they dress is that they always look good. And for me, myself personally, in the U.S., I can go out and rent a movie in my pajamas just out of the shower. Their style's really good. They wear a lot of black. Uh, I don't know if that's good or bad, but it works, I guess. But here, if I'm going to walk out the door to buy a baguette, I have to put some mascara on. It's just how it is. <laughs> So it is, it is definitely a je ne sais quoi, though. I have difficulty describing the beauty of a Parisian woman. <laughs> I can't quite describe what makes Parisian women so beautiful either. They walk around as though they're carrying this hidden secret of life that makes their skin glow and their walk seduce. It's an inner confidence, an inner beauty that has to be inborn. Try as we might, Emma and I won't ever get to that level of subtle, complex beauty that flows through these French women. We'll always be two steps behind. I can say really fast that I prefer American girls than French girls. Wait, what? They look always sexy, I think. More sexy than French girls. American girls are also more free, maybe. Uh, not free, but open-minded. Brazen. Fun. Confident. Laid back. Transparent. Like, uh, yeah, two days ago, there were a party in, in, in a club with American girls, and we saw them dancing with boys. Only f like friend dance, dancing with a friend, but for me and for all my friends, it was like uh, they look, li they dance uh, really hot dance, sexy dance with a boy. Normally, French girls do it only with her boyfriend, not with a friend. I think that American girls today are very much raised in the, uh, in the sort of sex in the city generation where if you want a guy, if you want to have sex with him, if you want to be in a relationship with him, you totally have the right you know, society says, go for it, <laughs> tap it. And in France, I think that that is frowned upon more. Now, I'm not saying that French girls aren't promiscuous at all. I'm just saying that they have to be more subtle about it than we do. Do you think that is maybe part of the appeal of French girls is that they are this kind of icon of femininity when American girls are maybe a little bit more testing the waters of gender boundaries and that sort of thing yeah I think that I think that French women definitely represent femininity more than the average American girl if there is an average American girl I think that when I was 
growing up, you know, I went to an all-girls school, K through eight, and we really aspired to play sports and develop strong opinions. And, you know, when I take which sex and city character test, I'm always Miranda. Now, I won't really want to be Miranda, but, you know, and what, I think the thing that kills me every time is that I really want to have a good career before I necessarily want to have a family. I feel like French women are much more comfortable with that traditional female role than American women are versus as an American woman, your success in life is based on your ability to multitask and do it all and have a career and a family. <laughs> Maybe this French mystique we all keep talking about isn't actually as attractive as we make it out to be. Sure, it's fun to look at from a distance, but when it comes down to it, what we want in our daily human interactions is to have real connections with one another. French women are difficult to meet, even harder to get to know, and nearly impossible to ask out on a date. Perhaps the openness and friendliness of American girls isn't a mark of unsophistication, but a sign that we're willing to make those connections. Come on over. Say hello. Oh, yeah. I mean, I prefer American girls simply because... I mean, it comes down to... As a, as a symbol for the entire philosophy they have, just people don't smile on the metro here. They don't, you don't see anyone smiling... Generally, you you pass by somebody, you never look at them. I mean, that's one of the first things they say here. Like, oh, in the U.S., everyone's smiling, everyone's happy. They say hello to people they don't know. You don't do that in France, and that's fine. That's a different culture, but just as, as symbolic for how French girls are, the fact that you're not smiling for no other reason than it's just not accept. Like, why not smile? It, there's no good reason to me why you shouldn't be smiling. So given how much you fundamentally disagree with everything that French girls seem to represent, why do you keep chasing them? Because it'd be a very proud day if I could say that I got with a French girl. Because then I could, then I could, if I got with a French girl, then I could really talk to her and see, I could see the roots of this, uh, this deranged philosophy that they have. But um, obviously there's some pride involved, just saying. If I said I was in Paris for a year and I didn't get with one French girl, I pretty sad man <laughs> Hannah is a junior at Stanford University We've just heard a story about how hard it can be to click with someone from a different culture. Sure, Emma and her boyfriend figured it out, but there are still all those forlorn Americans vainly chasing the aloof French female. It can be hard to click with a complete stranger. Maybe that's why blind dates were invented. Our next piece is a radio play. In it, a child given up for adoption asks his parents' matchmakers to describe the events that led up to his birth. Please, describe Christine. What can I say? She's... Amazing. Extraordinary. Unbelievable. Uh, great. And she's very real. She's fun-loving. But not fun-obsessed. Good with her hands. Christine's great with her hands. And her feet. 
but she's not stuck up about it. Not at all. Christine is great. We feel very good about Christine. And now, Andrew, please describe Andrew. He's different. Scary. Wild hair. Lots of scars. Blinks a lot. Loves his knives. But very funny. Intense. No, not funny. A little menacing. Warm heart, though. One hell of a warm heart. Great with kids. Kids adore him. Worship him. Adults don't tend to, usually. Um, finished. Done? Done? Please, please, state your rationale for the pairing of Andrew and Christine. Well, you know, they fit together. They were both 38. They both had a lot of free time. They both went to the same college. Overland. So there was a lot of overlap. Even their differences fit. Like, if she was not enough in one way, he, in that way, was more than enough. Like with kids, for example. Kids hate Christine. They abominate her. But they love him. Worship him. So that's why we thought they'd fit together. Because they matched. Because they matched. Please describe their first date. Andrew took her to a nice restaurant. We told him to take her to a nice restaurant. It was a blind date thing. It took forever to persuade them. We're your friends, we said. We want the best for you. He said he'd try it. But only because he'd seen her picture. If she doesn't look like that, he said. And then he just stared at us. She was even harder to convince. He's good with kids, we said. She said, does he boil them or bake them? That's an example of her sarcasm. We said he was cute. Finally, we said we'd pay her month's rent. And that did it. So he picked her up at her place. And they went to the nice restaurant. Andrew's a great driver. It's actually very sexy watching him steer. So they get to the restaurant. And it's filled with people. And Andrew starts saying, We know this because they told us after. And Andrew starts saying, I don't like people. And he's repeating himself. I don't like people. I don't like people. And he starts sweating. And he's saying, I didn't know there would be so many people here. And Christine says, we can go somewhere else. And Andrew starts to pinch the handle of his knife. He keeps a knife in his pants. And when he's nervous, he pinches it. He's not violent. It's just a thing he does. A keeping a knife in his pants and pinching the handle thing. So he's pacing back and forth. Pinching the handle of his knife. And Christine's saying, we can go somewhere else. We can go somewhere else. And Andrew, it's just like he's in his own world. A world of just his knife handle and him pinching it. But then he straightens up. And he goes up to the menu on the window and reads it. And he's reading it for a while. And he's reading it for a while. And just as Christine starts wondering to herself, When the hell is he gonna stop reading that menu? He turns on a heel, flashes a mischievous little smile at Christine, winks at her, puts his hand on her elbow, and leads her right inside the restaurant. And don't you know it? They have a great time. We get calls from both of them that night. Oh my god, Christine is amazing. They can't say enough about each other. Oh my god, Andrew is amazing. True love, and we made it happen. Please describe the courtship period. You know the ritual. We're not going to describe the ritual. Please describe the ritual. You know, walking puppies, trips to the animal shelter, puppy day at the zoo. Looking at puppies on the internet. Naming puppies I see on the street. Pretending they're puppies. And everything that comes after that. Please describe the wedding. Why? Not much to say about the wedding. Plain old, Just boring regular old, old wedding, regular wedding. wedding. It made me sad. Please describe the events prior to and immediately after my birth. Well, Christine and Andrew got along fine for a year or so. And then things started falling apart. It was real bad. They were horrible to be around. 
It's like they were punishing each other for something. Which, of course, made it hard for us to do our thing. And they tried couples counseling. And they tried sex with strangers. And they tried growing a garden together. But they kept punishing and punishing each other. So in the end, we finally said, Why don't you two just have a kid together? And that's how you came to be. Please describe the events since my adoption. Oh, you know, they're very sorry about that. They actually got along very well after you were gone. They had one big fight. Over how much water to give the tomatoes. But then they changed and never fought again. Later, they made friends with a teenager, a homeless kid. They paid for his education. He's a pharmacist now. Christine was sick for a while, but then she got better. They started a t-shirt company. We had a ton of money. For their 30th anniversary, Andrew bought her a boat. A big one. That was something neither of them knew about the other for a while. That they both loved boats. And being on them. In the water. The salty air. The wind in their faces. The cry of seabirds. The sunshine. But they haven't used it much. So sometimes we take it out. They keep their keys in a little drawer next to the steering wheel. We drink a few bottles of wine. Watch the sun go down. And then we take each other by the shoulder. Sing songs. Pass the bottle down the line. Talk about the good and bad in our lives. It's pretty nice out there. Cold, but nice. We appreciate it. Yes, we do. I'd say so. Life's funny. Anyway, how are you, Thatcher? I made that. Coming up in a bit, the science of clicking. Our next story takes love out of the heart and relocates it to the brain. Would more people click if romance was a little more rational? Stay with us to find out. Hey, welcome back. So, what have we learned so far? That sometimes we click with someone because he or she is not what we're used to. A nice, open American girl to make us forget that stone-faced beauty we left blinking at the cafe. And sometimes we have no idea just what we're putting in motion when we set two people up who do click. But how do we know when love is going to take root? Love's reasons are as diverse and baffling as people are. Does the idea of romantic love set our expectations so high we can't even recognize clicking when we see it? Would love flourish if we listened to the heart instead of the brain or the other way around? If we were more objective about who we choose, would we choose better? Two Stanford students investigate the mysteries of romantic attraction. Spring of 1945. A military ship drops anchor for a routine break from shuttling gasoline up and down the eastern seaboard. The crew of sailors disembark, gracious for their ten days leave. One particular sailor, one of our story's two co-stars, finds himself invited to this ritzy party. He pulled into New Orleans, uh, was invited to a party. He didn't like parties, uh, but he went anyway. 
The guy is sort of standing around awkwardly, not totally sure how to act, so he decides to escape to the kitchen and help serve the food instead. There, amid the pots and platters, he meets a woman who apparently had the same idea. So the two of them met serving the food at a party to other people. Their son, Father Nathan Castle, now a priest, explains how, despite having only ten days to get to know each other, it was more than enough. And the war was on. Very few people had anything extra. So they window shopped. They went up and down Canal Street, the main business district in New Orleans, and they looked in store windows day after day, and they sat in the park and ate lunch and so on, and they just enjoyed each other's company. And when it was time for him to leave, to get back on the ship, 10 days later, he proposed, and she accepted, and they were married three months later, just months before the war ended, and they were married 52 years when my father passed away. We've all heard countless versions of this story ever since we could first hear stories. Two people meet, and wham, they are in love. A short time later, they're married, and proceed to live happily ever after till death do them part. It's the kind of love story we all want to play a part in. I mean, choosing a life partner sounds like a daunting decision, but all I have to do is wait until I meet the right somebody, and wham, does it really work out that easy? Well... With tales like these acting as our culture's ideal, our real-life love stories haven't always played out well. America bears the burden of the second-highest divorce rate worldwide, 54.8%. That means stepping up to the altar will result less often in a lifetime of love, and more often in tears, lawyers, and paperwork. Is following our heart's intuition the best method of choosing a mate? But I can't help falling in love with you. To understand how we pick our life partner today, we need to understand what brought us to our current approach, trusting our instincts. I recalled from a sociology class I was recently in called Sex and Love in Modern Society that today's popular approach was actually a rather recent development. I decided to ask the professor who's taught the course, Paula England, how motivations behind marriage have changed. She described how, during a good part of the last century, the motivations behind marriage were completely different. In the old days, people were literally getting married when they were 19 because they didn't want to hold out for another, you know, five years not having sex. So that's not a reason to get married now. Then there was kind of an idea that, you know, women aren't going to have jobs, so they can't support themselves, so they need to get a man to support them, and women's employment has made that less of a reason for, for marriage. So I think a lot of she explained how, as the practical roles of marriage disappeared, the decision to get married or divorced rested more on the whims of the two people involved. Maybe the rules about marriage are becoming less strict. It's like marriage is becoming almost like this luxury, luxury good. The practical reasons that made marriage a necessity aren't as much there anymore. With our increasingly open-minded attitudes and plentiful wealth, American society is now safe for people to follow their heart into marriage, like Father Castle's parents were able to do in just 10 days spent together in New Orleans. And they turned out to be gloriously right. This seems to be the story we see everywhere. But as we've heard, the real stories usually don't have happy endings. Since listening to one's instincts 
doesn't seem so reliable, you might wonder if we have any idea what it is we're listening to. How do we know when what we're feeling is the genuine thing? Follow your heart, they tell you, and you'll just know. Learn to trust your instincts, those timeless romantics insist, or you'll never experience the real deal. If you've seen The Matrix, you may remember the scene where the Oracle explains that knowing you are in love, like knowing you are the chosen one, involves a leap of self-faith. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Being the one is just like being in love. No one can tell you you're in love. You just know it through and through. Should we really place all our trust in something we understand so little? What does my heart know about what's good for me anyhow? Blaise Pascal once famously wrote, The heart has reasons which reason knows nothing of. But it turns out that that hasn't stopped countless thinkers from trying to wrap their heads around what exactly it is that we're following when we're following our heart. I started my professional activity as a neurologist in the late 19th century Europe, Sigmund Freud developed a new branch of psychology, one that would change the way we see ourselves. I discovered some important new facts, psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis, a school of thought in which a person is treated as a product of many unconscious forces. Freud noted that the relationship one had with one's parents in early childhood is the strongest of these forces and may serve as the model for later relationships. He observed that, with regards to romantic attraction, the, quote, choice for men which is so strongly conditioned is derived from the infantile fixation of tender feelings on the mother. This formed the basis of what is now known as parental image theory. The idea that your relationship with your early caretakers becomes deeply associated in your subconscious with feelings of happiness. And then later on, something about a person reminds you of that first relationship, and suddenly you feel strong feelings of romantic attraction. It's a familiar melody that they're hearing. Maggie Scarf, Yale psychology professor, therapist, and author of such best-selling books as Intimate Partners. It's something they knew from long, long ago, maybe beyond memory, something from their childhood, something about that person that is special and the specialness has to do with some forgotten memory when i married my husband he was an extremely quiet man he's not particularly now but i had a very very quiet father scarf explains just how life-altering our experiences of early childhood are first of all when we come into the world we don't know a thing and the first things that we learn are very deeply impressed upon the central nervous system. English is your native tongue. It is the thing that is most deeply impressed upon you. It's your language. Well, there's a language of love and there's a language of giving and receiving affection that is learned very, very early. And it's learned before language is learned so that whatever happens early in life has a huge impression upon what follows. So, according to parental image theory, we are subconsciously drawn to those who recall the image of our parents that was imprinted upon us during those crucial years. The image of the parent 
be it a good image, be it a true image, be it a real image, and that when we fall in love, that image is what comes to life again. Suddenly, we believe we're back in that first place of Eden, of perfection, of two are one. There's no difference between us. If I like broccoli, then you'll certainly like broccoli. When we encounter this person whose qualities reawaken those deeply planted memories, we feel that giddy realization of the possibility of reclaiming that bliss, reclaiming that total security. Dr. Harville Hendricks, a clinical pastoral counselor and best-selling author, believes that parental image theory accounts for the most significant factor in who our subconscious chooses. And this um, image is embedded in the mind, and this image then serves as a kind of template for the search for a partner when the template and the personality traits of another person match this activates these memory traces, and that turns on the chemicals of the brain, um, dopamine. The dopamine high is what is that good feeling that comes with, that we refer to as romantic attachment. Unfortunately, the idealized nature of this subconscious image must eventually come to terms with reality. There's a moment when you realize that the person you believe you fell in love with is only human after all. Maggie Scarf has observed this to be a dangerous transition period. When you start, you know, getting more in touch with reality, which is, I may hate broccoli even though you like it, uh, that's when the romance starts to uh, show its cracks, which is usually within the first couple of years of marriage. In her time as a therapist, Scarf has counseled many couples and noticed a painfully ironic trend among those who follow their heart. At some point, the, the difficulties that arise in the marriage have to do with that very quality that first attracted you. So those very same traits that gave you those first jolts of attraction often eventually transform into what specifically repulses you. For instance, the very quiet, shy guy with a bubbly, outgoing wife will later on in the marriage redefine those qualities and say, what an airhead, she never stops talking, yak, yak, yak. This was an alarming development. I had merely suspected the heart of being uninformed, but well-meaning, maybe a bit foolish. This sort of behavior, however, came off as outright treason. It seemed clear that our subconscious does not have the same agenda that we do when it comes to mate choice. Sometimes they happen to coincide, but how I spend my life is something I prefer not to gamble with. Are there any other methods of going about this decision? To find an alternative, one need only look at the opposite end of the spectrum of national divorce rates. The lowest rate in the world can be found in India, with only one out of a hundred marriages resulting in divorce. Sri Lanka, Japan, and Kuwait are also among the nations with the lowest divorce rates. What else do these societies have in common? They are all known for practicing arranged marriage. Dr. Hendricks comments on the correlation between arranged marriage and low divorce rate. There's still arranged marriages, and there's uh, a, a report from those countries that the marriages are stable, even though they are not based on romance.
Arranged marriage is essentially when the match is determined by one's parents or relatives. It seems that the desires of the heart are ignored altogether, yet the marriages so rarely fail. Is this only correlation or causation as well? Are Indian marriages happier than American ones? Professor England insists that they aren't happier, they just have different standards. The more we have the idea that a marriage should be a real companionship, the more we have that kind of high standard, it probably actually does make possible better marriages. But it also means that when things get difficult, people have more of a sense of this is not okay and they're more willing to leave. It's certainly true that divorce is more accessible in westernized nations. Get a load of this commercial I found online. Call 0800 0789204 or go to divorceonline.co.uk to find out how you could get divorced for just £65. So, according to Professor England, all this contributes to a greater willingness in countries like America to give up on a rocky marriage. Whereas, in countries with extremely low divorce rates... It's everything about how people have less ability to be okay if they leave the marriage, not at all about the marriages are better. What Professor England said certainly made sense, but I couldn't shake the feeling that there was more to the consistent success of India's marriages than simply a stigma against divorce. There had to be something that made these relationships more functional. I decided to interview somebody with first-hand experience with arranged marriage, a woman from my meditation class. I quickly learned that many Americans and I possess a rather archaic idea of what arranged marriage is really like. I asked her whether she thought there was a significant stigma attached to divorce in India. Um, yes, it used to be at one point, but I don't think it is like that anymore. So if the marriage really didn't work, the family would be yes. okay? if it really didn't work, yes. They do, but they do give their best to make it work. First priority is to come work me to make the marriage work. She now lives as an art teacher by day, meditation teacher by evening, and full-time wife and mother. I asked to hear the story of her marriage. Well, 20 years ago, my parents introduced, uh, our parents introduced us to each other. They had to match horoscopes. Uh -huh. And so about uh, three months prior to January, so 1987, they found that our horoscopes matched. So they said, okay, let's, uh, you know, arrange for them to meet and talk and then take it from there. What was the meeting like? Well, they sat across from each other and chatted and... Oh, we decided in an hour. Within an hour, these two people who had never met before decided to spend the rest of their lives together. She said that while her instinctive attraction to her husband certainly played a part in her decision to marry him, there were many other factors that were considered. I personally felt that way. I, I felt that there were a lot of other factors that were important to me. Besides just that one person, the family background, I really need. I had a specific expectations of the family type or their bringing uh, value systems. So after all of those things, then I looked at... Uh, my comfort level with that person. So it's not just only the gut feeling, but you have to look into other factors also. I asked her if she had any thoughts on why the American divorce rate was so high. I think there's too much of independent thinking. Um, it's like uh, people kind of seclude themselves and then not does not allow anybody else to enter into their 
family life to um, give advice or give support or in any other way. Western societies, especially today, are well known for valuing highly independence and individuality, which is definitely reflected in the way we marry. But with arranged marriage, it's like two families are getting married, not just the couple. The families do their best to support the couple, and she explained that this is a very important reason why arranged marriages are so successful. The group support is definitely much more, um, it plays a very important and a significant role in supporting a marriage and supporting relationships. Arranged marriage is based on such a fundamentally different philosophy that it can be very difficult for those from nations like America to understand it. But after this illuminating conversation, the other perspective easily made just as much sense to me as following your heart did. I spent some time in Japan and... Uh, this is Professor uh, Pierce from Hope College, Michigan, where he's been teaching courses on family sociology for the last 35 years. He spent some time doing social research in Japan, a country where arranged marriage is not uncommon. I often propose that to my students, that I, I think um, maybe the, uh, the calm and calculated ideas of someone's parents about who would be a good partner may well be wiser than those passionate ideas that two young people have about who would be a better partner. Piers is suggesting that having an objective but knowledgeable third party choose a partner for you can be a very effective method. But given that our culture isn't about to relinquish the right to choose anytime soon, we are bound to marry someone we select at a subconscious level. Piers points out that all we need to do is acknowledge the unconscious forces with our conscious mind and reconcile any differences. For instance, if I'm always attracted to a, a woman who loves to take risks, then I have to ask myself, while that's an immediately attracting characteristic, is this what I want in a long-term relationship? As we articulate the factors that make others attractive to us, then the second step is to say, and is this not just what I want today, but is this what I want long-term from another? What might the pros and cons of a long-term relationship with a person like this be? A little critical thinking about our personal patterns of attraction that we've always taken for granted can go a long way towards years of happiness. As I examine things, it gives me the opportunity to not only decide that, oh, this is who I'm attracted to, but also to evaluate those criteria for attraction and maybe change them somewhat. I might say, but I know that long term that always leads to something not functional and happy, but something dysfunctional. So I have to consciously self-regulate and I have to modify what seems to be my initial attraction. Really, the passionate, instinctive marriage and the logical big picture marriage both involve their own brand of deep wisdom. Perhaps there was some prudent middle ground option out there. Considering that Father Castle, who you'll remember from his story of his parents' New Orleans love, has presided over hundreds of weddings in his 23 years as a priest, there's a good chance that he had something worthwhile to say about thinking before you leave. You ought not be engaged to somebody while you're, you're so giddy in first love that you haven't thought through in a, in a pretty uh, rugged way whether you really want to do this or not. We, we don't, uh, that's why we, we, we don't encourage people to get married fast 
uh, and most of the time they appreciate it. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just want us to marry them fast as we can, and other times we're slowing them down and saying, you know, we'll be happy to do that, but we first want to get to know you a little better and check out some things. Now you will feel no rain, for each of you will be shelter for the other. Now you will feel no cold, for each of you will be warmth to the other. Earlier today, I stood in Stanford's Memorial Church, where Father Castle presided over this wedding. But the visibly exuberant couple that stood before me did not meet by chance hiding in the kitchen of a party. Their first meeting was a deliberately calculated one. Allow me to introduce our newly married couple, Paul and Elizabeth. My name's Elizabeth Winchell. I'm the bride. I'm Paul Brink. I'm the groom. We met on the, uh, over the internet, a dating site called eHarmony. Mm -hmm. Online dating services like eHarmony or Match.com have recently made huge gains in popularity. Over 40 million Americans use them. That's almost 15% of the entire country. I, I've been fascinated, but I'm, I'm not even a student of online dating. And, and Dr. Piers explains how Americans may have stumbled into a method of mate selection that's closer to the ideal compromise between relying entirely on either the impulsive subconscious or the logical mind. Online dating services assess your subconscious with a method that relies largely on your conscious ability to honestly answer questions about yourself. I've been somewhat impressed with a few where the questions, if answered honestly and accurately, would be really valuable questions for making an initial mate selection. In other words, when two people in this dating service at least would get together based on the mutuality or the similarities and how they filled out these forms. Maybe that should be a first step. They look for 29 axes of compatibility. Yeah. So we have to we have to answer like um, 100 questions, and the first 90 or questions are actually about yourself. Mm -hmm. They they're asking you to be very honest about yourself. And then, as they do in the dating services. They get together for a few times. We were at the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco. That was our first date. Yeah, it yeah. was wonderful. It was such a great first date that when it was time to go home, we decided not to. We went for a walk in the marina and immediately started a second date. After they've already sorted out these other various things, and then they say, ah, oh, you know, there is something here. There is a kind of chemistry here between us. Or... Even though we have a lot in common, there isn't chemistry. So if you'll excuse me, I'm going to look to my next possible partner. Within the first few weeks of meeting Elizabeth, I knew it was going to be serious. And, yeah, and it seemed to me early on that he was marvelous too. And when he introduced me to his dad, I knew for sure he was serious. Piers doesn't see online dating as the solution, but as a step in the right direction. And I don't think we need online dating services to do it, but. They've already got it all computerized, and, and I think they may be on to at least a method of mate selection. Have we been fed false expectations of what love should be? I've always believed that it was a virtually self-evident fact that love came entirely from within. I've always felt sorry for those in arranged marriages, pitying that they didn't get what they really wanted. But now I imagine my Indian counterpart across the ocean pitying the close-minded Americans 
running around choosing their mate blindly, obsessed with satisfying urges that they have no idea how to explain. To say who is right or wrong about any matter of love would be a futile exercise. For despite all the songs and theories and books, love remains a grand mystery. You don't need to understand it to have a lifelong happy marriage, just as you don't need to understand the machinery inside your car to get to work each day. Assuming that you do know the reasoning of the heart is undoubtedly a mistake, but let us never let that fact discourage us from trying to figure it out. There's a personal journey of self-exploration that each of us must undergo before we can know the right time to follow our heart and write our own love story. That was produced by Art Tosbevorn and Stu Blair. Thanks, Art. Thanks, Stu. Today's show was produced by me, Charlie Mintz, along with help from Bonnie Swift, Rachel Hamburg, Hannah Krakauer, and Jonah Willingans. It was engineered by Dan Hirsch. Thanks to everyone who contributed to our show today. The voices in the radio play belong to Nick Joukowsky, Kazi Bassett, Amanda Schloss, Dan Hirsch, Brower Otis, and Andrew Bishara. Original music for the show was written and performed by George Pritzker, Jeff Stryker, Brian Ware, and the band Snuffleupagus. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, Stanford's Oral Communication Program, Stanford Continuing Studies, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would like to thank the law offices of Fenwick and West. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. For the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Charlie Mintz.